Welcome back to another episode of the On Coaching Podcast with Magnus and Marcus. I am Steve Magnus, the Deputy Director of High Performance West, joined by my good friend and colleague, John Marcus, the Director of High Performance West. John, another glorious day. How are you doing? Oh, we in the building. Back to give the people what they want. I'm excited for this one. This is gonna be a fun podcast. It is because we get to top. We get to tackle the topic of threshold training. Oh my goodness, that's a uh, the most opaque ocean of definition ever. What does it mean? Does it mean marathon pace? Does it mean 10k pace? I don't know. Yeah. Well, actually, I, I know what it means for me. When I mean, Steve knows what it means for him, and that's what we're going to unpack. And I think that's the key there is what it means to you or me, right? So, right. um jumping into the definition a little bit. You know, one of the things when I first started my uh science education is I was like, "Oh, like we're going to define this, right?" And then mm. you read the research and you read the books and you read and they're all based on like, you know, lactate or VO2 or whatever. And all of a sudden you have literally probably six, seven, eight, nine different names and definitions for very similar things. Right. So mm-hmm. you can say, hey, that's the, the lactate threshold, the anaerobic threshold, the aerobic threshold, the four millimole like threshold. Uh, the maximum lactate steady state, like all of these things that which nebulously means something in this same kind of parameter and zone. Um, so it's not just coaches that are confused. It's not just, you know, scientists that are confused. We've done a really, really poor job of figuring out and defining what this quote unquote lactate threshold or threshold actually means. And when we can't define what it means, um, we can't actually apply it very well to our training. Exactly. Precision matters. And I think whenever you create a schedule, whenever you're designing training, there is a relevant outcome that one is pursuing for the athlete to be able to, you know, um, express in the competitive arena on a certain day or in a certain time period. Right. And so we just say, we call this thing steady state. We call it tempo. We call it threshold, aerobic threshold, lactate threshold, anaerobic threshold. There's a lot of different thresholds out there. And I think, you know, we need to very clearly define which threshold is um, the most potent for different event groups. Also, which thresholds are complementary to each other. And then which ones are just, in my opinion, or maybe in Steve's opinion, junk, because there are some junk ones as well. And I think, that is where we get a lot of disagreement is just in the um, semantics and definitions or lack thereof of these different um, quote unquote zones. And again, yeah, you can define it however you want. I mean, there's a lot of different ways, right? Uh, depending on your like blood lactate levels, right? Or uh, heart rate or um, pace. Um, you know, those are, tend to be typically the most used um, ways to define that quote-unquote zone for that type of threshold training but then too you have to ask yourself like I ask myself all the time why why are we doing it what is the impact that we want to have how is this going to help the athlete get better and I think over and over and over again that why must be top of mind because you know sometimes we default to thinking we're right but we need to stop and ask why do we think or why do I think I'm right and if you ask why you think you're right, 
it forces you to reflect a little bit and really critically do a deep dive and um, try to figure out is this the best course or not? So, and I think that why portion brings us to a good question and one that I've thought about really um, a lot frequently. In fact, had a good conversation with our good friend Vern Gambetta uh, yesterday on the same subject. And that is, I think there needs to be a clear distinction between threshold in terms of a zone of training and threshold in terms of the quality we're changing. Right. And mm, I think mm-hmm. I think sometimes we intertwine those and, and get it in our mind that, oh, in order to improve this scientific idea thought of improving my lactate threshold, what does that mean? Oh, I do lots of threshold training. I do lots of threat work at this threshold, which we're going to define. And the the reality is, like, you can improve the quality of the threshold by doing a variety of work, right? Right. I, I can, you know, if I was an Igloy disciple, I would do it through, you know, 400-meter repeats manipulated in the correct way. Or mm-hmm. if I'm a swim coach, right, I use a lot of broken-up sets and reps instead of going out for the traditional 20-minute threshold run or the, you know, longer 60-minute at marathon pace or whatever it is so i think even before getting into the definitions i think it's important to understand the the difference and dichotomy between the quality that you're trying to develop and the intensity zone which we've kind of just assigned right right the and you're right the definition matters and the why matters a lot and so i think it's on us as coaches to stop being so sloppy and throwing around this term called threshold because there's a lot of weighted assumption um, for, for different coaches who emphasize a different type of quality uh, enhancement in their program about what threshold is. So there's three thresholds in my um, schema when I'm writing training. You have aerobic threshold, you have lactate threshold, or lactate threshold, excuse me, and then you have anaerobic threshold. Those are the three thresholds that I really um, put into different buckets that have a different quality of enhancement, that have a different uh, methodology and different modalities to um, subject the athlete to through various duration of types of work and intensity of type of work. Steve, how does that fit with your view or spectrum of this thing called threshold training? Yeah, so to me, it's this uh, this ambiguous, continuous, um, ambiguous, continuous. All of it. <laughs> ambiguous. It is. It's this this spectrum, right? It's this mm-hmm. this intensity versus how long, how much volume we can sustain it. And what I tend to tend to do is get away from the threshold tempo like names. Instead, I tend to look at it. And look at around marathon pace or around pretty steady, right? Mm-hmm. Um, I look at it as around half marathon pace, right? Or around about what you could run for an hour, 15K to half marathon pace, which is diff- uh, differs. Um, that would be coincide with your kind of traditional lactate threshold if we use scientific mm-hmm. terms. And then I use what I call like a pressing tempo or like a pressing threshold work where we're just pressing things down, where it's in between that 10K and half marathon pace, 
where it's like you're you're pushing the edge. Okay. The other way mm-hmm. I like to describe these to my kids is the marathon pace steady is just that. It's steady. You're under control. The kind of half marathon pace effort tempo that we use, that is where you're you're just above that line where you're riding it, right? Where you can say a short sentence or two, where you can say, we used to, when I was training, we used to say, like, I feel good, I feel great, I want to communicate. Mm-hmm. And you just, like, you could get that phrase out, and that's about it, right? So you're just riding that line. And then the last form that I use is that pressing part where we're, we're pushing right over that line, right? Where we're no longer just on that edge of in control, but we're like teetering on that. Well, this is like, this is about as, as much as I can sustain for a prolonged time. So that's kind of how I see it. Um, if that makes sense. Yeah. I think you have to relate it back to, um, racing efforts because we do have uniform distances that we compete over. And so why would we engage in some scientific terminology that has no correlation for the athlete at hand if we can't relate it back to a racing effort or a racing intensity um, that they're going to face. And so I think we're simpatico there because I call, um, you know, the aerobic threshold marathon pace. I I mean, I call it that steady or tempo. That's what in my, you know, um, taxonomy of terms, steady or tempo basically means the, the clip that you run for anywhere between 90 minutes to two and a half hours of racing which falls into about half marathon, marathon pace. I call threshold sloppily the 15K intensity effort, your lactic thresh, lactate threshold. That's what I default when I say threshold. I use that um, because, again, when you start to say you list the spectrum of thresholds, it starts to get confusing for the athlete. So I've just picked it arbitrarily. That's me. That's how I do it. That's how I communicate with the athletes. So I know when it's threshold – it's going to be at about 15K race pace. And then the anaerobic threshold, or what you're calling pressing, I typically just call it 8K race pace and faster. Like It's like this kind of 8K. It can be 10K. It can be to 6K. For me in my world, 5K and faster work um, is much different. It has a much different intensity and specificity to it. But anything that's kind of in that range, depending on the individual that I'm working with, that makes sense for, um, you know, that type of rhythm where we view it as our anaerobic threshold, that's really how I define it. Right. So, again, I think everyone coach has to know and create their own terminology, um, and, but be very specific with their athletes so the athlete knows where they are or what is expected of them or what is assigned of them that day in training so they, they can um, run at the appropriate intensity to get the response and the adaptation and um, from the stimulus that is asked of them. And and I think that's, that's the key right there is that as coaches, we need to be able to communicate the intensity and the effort level that we're looking for, right? The scientific definition does not matter to a large degree if we can't communicate like the intensity and effort level that we're looking at. For example, like when I was a younger athlete, um, I used to have a, a, um, a device that would measure lactate levels. And I'd just like mess around with that all the time on some of my uh, threshold type runs, right? You're four miles at 
low five minute pace, for example. And it, depending on the day and the shape, like I could either nail it where I'd be pretty steady and lactate levels wouldn't rise, but sometimes mm-hmm. like they just keep rising and you know i was at a set around the same pace but the effort level was increased and like when i saw that that's where i said hey wait a minute like okay even from a scientific standpoint like i'm not going to be good enough to like nail this this like term all the time and maybe that i don't need to but like i need to teach what the effort is that i'm looking for because that's going to dictate things to a larger degree than anything else so I think that gets us to the point where the vocabulary matters and how you communicate what your expectations are um, for that intensity matters a lot. Yeah. And I think, too, you have to decide for yourself and the um, type of athletes you're working with, which um, create you need to create a hierarchy. You need to create, in my opinion, a, um, you know, uh, a rank order about which ones are most important to end your catalog of training which ones are least important you know since i work with mostly milers to 10k athletes mostly track and field type athletes you know without a doubt number one is always going to be lactate threshold or at 15k race pace and then number two is going to be the anaerobic threshold or 8k type race case uh long ago you know i came across the work of uh, steven seller um the american-born um sports scientist who is now in Norway um, that discussed polarized training methodology, which to me is the most cutting edge, most useful research that is out there right now because what he does is he looks at what elite athletes are actually doing and what responses they're getting, whether it's cross-country, skiing, or cycling, or distance running. It's not some, you know, pontification or hypothesis and then we're going to take this biopsy or take these readings of untrained college males or females and this and that. He's actually looking at what the best in the world are doing to train and get better. And I think we have to stop and look at that and understand that you need to check your references. Even though the scientific method gives us a degree of certainty, what is the resource? Where is it coming from? If you're training to do an uncommon thing, Look to what uncommon people are doing. Don't look to what the common folk are doing. And it's not a, a put down of anybody. It's just these are people who are whose livelihoods are you know on the line and that matter, doing it at the highest level. And yet we want to sit here and argue about the validity of research uh, on college students who are untrained and partying two three nights, you know, a week. So, <laughs> you know, that's my little soapbox rant, real quick. But, anyways. His research has been really cutting edge and has shown um, there is a gray zone, which is about uh, marathon type pace, where you're working hard, but not hard enough to get a quality response. But then also, too, you're working a little too hard to get a recovery response. So it's this gray area, which he his research has suggest is worth your time and effort energy to shy away from. Because it's a minimal response um, area and zone. Now, I've interpreted that and I have said, great, won't touch it. Even for people I'm training to run the marathon, won't touch it. And people are like, well, why don't you run marathon pace for the marathon? Well, you know, that's that's a big can of worms because it seems logically very straightforward. Because every other event that we train for, we run 
event-specific paces. But if you're telling me that running marathon paces, a gray zone, in an area where I do not get a whole lot of return on my investment of time and energy, I'm going to stay away from that. Instead, what I'm going to do is I'm going to invest in faster running. So what did I call, you know, threshold or lactate threshold, 15K race pace running and faster. And I'm going to chop it up into manageable chunks. So instead of going for an hour at that, it might be an hour's worth of work or maybe even 75 minutes worth of work, but in the most potent dosage. And what his research has shown and um, what has suggested is there is a higher potency for work around eight minutes in duration with mini breaks because the body at a cellular level does not know the difference between running, um, you know, three times eight minutes at this 15K race pace intensity with 60 seconds rest versus just running 24 minutes straight. You'll probably actually be able to run faster for the eight-minute rep, thus getting a higher response because cognitively on a psychological level, you'll be looking forward to that one-minute quote-unquote break even though metabolically, physiologically, it's not really a break, but since you're going to perceive it to be one, you're like, oh, okay, I can go again. So I have gone far, far away since I have um, uh, experimented, had experience with, had feedback from athletes um, based off this idea from this research from the long, steady tempo run. I don't think I've really prescribed anything over 20 minutes steady to any athlete I've worked with, including Tara Welling, um, for years here because it just, to me, didn't seem like the highest return on investment. Now, does that mean that people aren't doing 60 to 80 minutes worth of, you know, uh, 15K race pace or threshold? No, 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 not at all. They're, we're just doing it in chunks. We're doing it in like five times eight minutes with 60 seconds rest, something of that nature. And my experience and evidence from the people that I work with is they've gone a lot better in that area and their stamina has increased significantly compared to other times when they employed more traditional tempo running of five mile tempo, six mile tempo straight. Now there is a time and place for that. I'm not discrediting it by any means because it also can build grit. It can build a certain degree of tenacity, et cetera. You know, there's some value there, but just I've made that call for my own practice for the type of athlete I work with right here, right now. And it has worked really well um, based off the feedback and the evidence of the results that we've gotten. Steve, what about you? Oh, man, there's a lot to unpack there. All right, where to begin? I, I think, well, I think the first thing that needs to be addressed is what are you training for? Right. Mm-hmm. Is... Are you training for a 10K, 5K, or half marathon? Or are you training for a marathon? Like, what? what's the event demands, right? And then what What do you bring to the table from a physiological standpoint, from a cognitive standpoint? Because all these, one and I love Seiler's work, but one of the things I always have problems with on all these things is that it breaks it down to... Um, this might not be best from one parameter, right? From a physiological standpoint, let's say. Like this stimulus might not make as much sense as we, as we think it should, right? But then performance training is multifactorial, right? So if I have an athlete who 
maybe from a stamina standpoint, doesn't need a lot of marathon pace stuff, right? Doesn't need it, doesn't benefit from it. But from a cognitively demanding focus standpoint, needs to be stuck doing the same thing, running the same pace for, you know, 80 minutes, because that is their weak point, then I have to consider, right? Or if I have someone who, from a fueling standpoint, their body, for whatever reason, is burning carbs through the roof um, and is going to run out of fuel, then I have to take him to that place and let his body fail maybe with a really prolonged thing. So I think uh, when you look at these things, we have to understand that there's there's incredible complexity behind it. Um, so what what I tend to do, and this differs a little from you, I think, is that let's start with our our standard like five six miles worth of tempo work. Okay, what I tend to do, and I started this back when I was a high school kid or coach, is I like to assign a total amount that I want to get in, and then. I let it up to the athletes to figure out how they get there sometimes. So I might say, hey, I want 30 minutes of like this effort level, right? But if you get to five minutes and you're feeling like, oh, I'm a little over the edge, I need to back it off, then go five minutes, take a minute break, and then go again. And that that's kind of how, how like it is. It's like, okay, sometimes you're going to go 20 minutes and then take a break and then do you know, three by three minutes and then a minute at the end, right? As long as you're at this effort that I'm trying to get you at, then like split it up as you as you can. And I think uh, that gives some autonomy to the athletes when you do that. Um, but it also allows you to split these things up. Um, from a longer standpoint, when I'm working with 10K, half marathon, et cetera, I still like that longer stimulus, but what I've shifted to more recently is doing it in progression style, right? So instead of your big 10-mile like run or 8 to 10-mile tempo run at, you know, around marathon pace, what I tend to do is I might give a 7 to 8-mile progression, right? So for someone like, let's take Brian Barraza when he was training for cross-country, that might start as slow as 540 pace, but it might end at 445 pace for the last mile, right? So we're working our way through these blends of tempos, thresholds, etc., and getting like this long sustained aerobic effort, but coming through. Um, so that's, that's how I've shifted to handle some of those longer sustained aerobic works is turning them into progressions and even in terms of splitting it up, right? So one of my favorite things to do is like three by three mile with, um, 800 meters easy in between where we're progressing each three miles throughout. So we're kind of blending through that continuum of high end aerobic efforts. Now, where things get really interesting is the marathon because again, I think there's something to be said for the fueling and the cognitive demanding approach and what they need to give them the mental fortitude and grit and confidence to get through the marathon race. So what I try to do is include enough marathon pace work or enough big marathon pace work if 
this athlete needs it, where it gives them that that physiological reaction, that biomechanics of running 13, 14 miles at that effort, right? Um, and that fueling, you know, cognitive demanding of spending that much time on your feet. Um, so we'll do, I don't do it as much as I used to, but we'll do several big, maybe like two or three big, big marathon paced efforts throughout like a, you know, a 16 week marathon build, for example. What I like to do instead is to simulate that a little bit with either progression within a long run, right? So maybe 10 miles easy. And then eight miles progression, right? So you use the first 10 miles to get your legs a little tired. And then you only have to do like a shorter segment um, of, uh, you know, eight miles to kind of press that zone. Or just like a longer steady thing. So instead of, for instance, Zach Hine, who marathon paces, what, like 5.15, 5.10. Like he had a lot of success when we... Um, instituted, hey, you're just going to go 20 miles. And I want this almost like Lydia used to do it, like 20 miles at six minutes to 545 pace, right? Where we're not pressing down into that that marathon pace, but it's fast enough where it's aerobically demanding and cognitively demanding, and it's going to make you feel kind of tired at the end. Um, but we're not really on that aerobic threshold or that aerobic tempo um, marathon pace that that we use, but we can kind of sustain it for a longer time. So that's that's hopefully a, a quick unpack of how I use all these things. Yeah, I'm, I I mean my mind's open. And I don't know, you know, I'm a little skeptical though about marathon pace in general. I look at so many athletes and well-intended athletes and coaches who employ marathon pace work the how many times have you you know heard about oh i did 18 miles at my marathon pace i did 20 miles at my marathon pace i did two or three of those workouts it went great and then come race day boom blows up you know it, it it's too consistent of a, a narrative i've seen it too often where so it's this almost false positive my my right? my 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 counter to that is this is if you look at what most of those programs do, you have to look at how often they do it, right? Mm -hmm. How often are they trying to do that big tempo, right? Or that big marathon pace effort, A. B, are they using that as a test session, a proving session? Right. Right, which is the temptation to do it because you sit mm -hmm. there and you say – oh, if I can run 18 miles at marathon pace, I'm going to be good. So I'm proving myself in this, right? But I think I think if you manipulate training and, again, have small spices of it. You know, Neely Spence is an athlete who is really great at doing this. It's hmm. her longest – I forget what build it was. It could have been Boston. But her longest, like, marathon pace effort was kind of like 10 miles, right? And it was just within a run. Um, a, a long run and it it wasn't to prove herself to get that she could run that pace it was like okay like i need this mechanical i need this cognitive i need this fueling side um this physiological of like creating efficiency at this rhythm so i'm gonna just run this rhythm long enough to feel it right and i think there's there's especially for marathoners there's 
something to that. I think where we go wrong is uh, we almost it, – it's almost like the recreational, like the weekend warrior. What do they do when they train them for the marathon? They put all their emphasis on the long run. Like nothing else matters, right? You could right. run yeah. two days a week of you know three miles, but then on, the, on that Sunday, you're doing – 20 miles and it makes zero sense right <laughs> right but they've yes. been taught they've been told like oh in order to run the marathon i need to do the long run well i think right. at, the, uh, at the elite level we do the same thing only it's in order to run the marathon like we have to nail 18 miles at this marathon pace you know and i i've been there too like i remember um actually i remember pacing people when i was with uh thou who shall not be named but like it was a couple weeks before the marathon. It's like, oh my god, these people are gonna run so great. They're gonna kill it. They're gonna win, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, um, because they nailed you know the the seventeen miles or whatever it was at a at some quick pace where the single goal was to run the seventeen miles as fast as we can possibly average, right? Um, mm-hmm. When you set yourself in that situation, I think you're setting yourself up to fail because you're yeah. you're changing the emphasis from practice of accomplishing like some sort of game that makes us grow to um, proving ourselves in order to get it done. Yeah. I mean, it's, it, it, again, evidence is, is the most difficult thing to ascertain because again, we're looking at outliers. We're looking at people who are doing it at a high level. And then you have, um, you know, stories or, um, different um, perspectives of people who are kind of at the sub elite level and then also recreational level, which are all valid. Don't get me wrong. But I'm always curious about, you know, we're looking for best practices, right? Best, best methods. And I've seen at least a shift in my own thought and thinking from, you know, you know, this is devolving to kind of a marathon training discussion, but uh, to, to employ the same logic and mindset that we use in track training, which is two hard workouts or maybe three hard workouts or semi-hard workouts a week and then a long run on the weekend. And we just translate that right into the marathon type work, two difficult, speedier workouts and a longer run, which can also be a workout itself. And I've just noticed recently coaches at the highest level who are in their athletes are having um, competitive marathons and being able to compete in the latter stages, which is what counts, are employing longer long runs, right? Like three hour long runs if they're aiming to run two two hours for or two and a half hours for the uh, the event. You know, and I wonder too if there's an unexplored threshold there. And we, we you know we we're talking right now in terms of metabolic threshold, but again, what about the psychological threshold, right? And I think the cognitive threshold is something that is yet to be explored or put a lot of emphasis and energy on, which is if you're training for a marathon and you're doing a three hour, three and a half hour long run, which is 90 minutes, or I mean, uh, 30 to 60 minutes longer than you'll have the time spent on the feet. If you can create a, th- a cognitive threshold to be able to cope with running for however long at just the normal, you know, relaxed, not difficult rhythm, does that have a translation to your physiological threshold as well, right? And so I think we spend so much time in this metabolic physiological world that we forget the psychological lens and how important that is as well. And so when you're doing this threshold work, whatever it may be, that's important why in question to ask as well. What is the psychological threshold for this athlete? Because let's go to the opposite end of the spectrum. Let's say Michaela Fricker, who's a two flat 800 meter 
um, competitor I work with, getting her to do a mile at six minute pace, dear goodness, <laughs> like that is the most difficult thing <laughs> that she could ever do. And it's all in her head, you know, because she can do it. But that is her threshold work. We will do like two by a mile at six minute pace. And man, it just takes all the focus in the world. She's just like, okay, I'm going to get this. And it's like, you run half a mile at two flat. How is this? But, you know, people look at that from a physiological lens. Like, oh, she's just, there's no way she can run that fast. She doesn't have the stamina or, you know, the, the requisite, you know, anaerobic threshold to do it. If she can't run two by a mile at six flat, eh, well, it's about the athlete in front of you, right? Because psychologically, it's a big barrier for her. So that's another important threshold I think we need to I, respect when, 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 discussing these these different training thresholds 100 100 because like you know mark mark english is the same way you know it's, it's funny like i consider his aerobic training sometimes is like one mile 530 pace you know and you, yeah you, you yeah. write that down and you're just like okay but mm-hmm. but like that's you know or like using shorter fart like to get the same thing right where it's like oh right. minute on minute off like this is kind of aerobic for you um, and, and I think that's where it's important to, again, look at the athlete in front of you and understand, like, what are the, the demands? Because, like, in any traditional, you know, scientific view of things, like one or two miles at, at this quote unquote slower effort, um, that right. shouldn't, shouldn't do much. But it, it does, right? And it's what's needed for them in front of you. And I think that's where sometimes we, it gets back to what I talked about in the beginning is, are we worried about the zone or the quality we're developing? Because mm-hmm. if we're worried about the quality we're developing, then that two by one mile at six minute pace for Michaela or that one mile at 520, 530 pace, whatever it is for Mark, is developing that, that aerobic quality that we're seeking. But if we're talking about running in the zone, whatever zone we've defined, then it's not, you know, um, Again, that a discussion I had with Vern Gambetta, who was working with uh, the really strong miler, 1500 runner, Peter Callahan. Mm-hmm. And he was telling me how he's, he's eliminated all of his threshold work and in and, and place of it put fart legs, right? Right. Yeah. Because cause he's like, oh, this kid's a, a miler who has a certain attitude um, about him, and I'm going to develop that quality. But I'm going to do it in a different way than like the traditional, oh, I have to run at this zone. I'm going to do it fartlek style. Um, but wait, time out, time out. Fartlek is traditional. Let's just... <laughs> can, yeah, can no, we just it be, is. Right? I mean, it's going way, way back to Pavo, right? right? It, I mean, that's that's like one of the OG training messages, fartlek. Right. And right? But, but I think that's a good point. And I think what's happened is like if you trace the uh, the history of it, which we will, by the way, in our uh, HPW Scholar Seminar. So if you haven't, check that out. Supreme. Sorry. Supreme. Supreme. Sorry. Supreme, Supreme yes. Scholar. Scholar Sup- Supreme Seminar. Seminar. 50 days of John and I just hammering this stuff down. But wait, yes, I'm very excited. So this is a plug. Check that out on HPW. Because like we are, I'm gonna, we're, we're tracing the history of training so that you guys understand this and we understand it. But that's a good point. But, it, it, you know, Fartlick has taken on this untraditional, um, uh, you know, definition because it's not structured 
are not right. highly there's structured. freedom. It, there's freedom to it. Freedom. That was the point of Farlick was yeah. speed play, right? Yeah. And you could manipulate it based on how fast you ran the actual on portion and how long. And then, too, manipulate it based on how fast or slow and how long or short was the off section. And so my argument is exactly this. We sit here in the modern era talking about these thresholds and, you know, talking about millimoles and, you know, d- different um, aerobic, anaerobic, and lactate. But two, how much of that was explored and maximized with just something as simple as fartlek? And I think, you know, when you tell someone, because I have, I mean, I think we had this discussion with Vern, or maybe I had this discussion with Vern about a month, a year ago, you know, was like, yeah, I just don't think all this structured threshold training is as effective as just fartlek. And so I, the last year with a lot of HVW um, elites that I'm working with, I've assigned and given them more more farlick you know even like in the fall right like i had like michaela and eleanor fulton doing on track farlick where we would just start in lane three in the middle of the track so yeah they're on the track and so i can watch them because they like running their stuff on the track but they don't know where they are so they can't really get a split and it's just like blow a whistle go for three minutes blow a whistle go easy for a minute, blow a whistle, you know, so you don't even need the watch. You're just running completely free of even that burden of seeing how much more longer you have. Right. So it was a, you know, opportunity for me to kind of experiment and explore. And that's really, we got to remember, that's what training is about. There's no right or wrong. There's experiment, there's explore. The only judges are the result, right? The outcome you have to own, the outcome is what it is. And that is the only thing that can judge. And then from that, you get this evidence and you get this feedback about if what you explored and experimented with was of usefulness or not because the athlete was either able to compete at the level they want to on the relevant day or not. So, you know, I think that's important for us to air that bias, that bias that we have right now. Because, you know, we have this great work from Daniels and we have V-Hill and we have all these amazing physiologists who have made it a little bit more exact and precise so we can have more confidence and reassurance about if we do this type of training, we'll get this type of response, you know, systematically in this much time, generally speaking, which is important to understand No, But then, too, sometimes also really important just to throw out the window and go have fun, <laughs> you know? Yeah. No, I think – you know, I think, and that's why, like I mentioned, the way that I like to do thresholds uh, a lot is giving that power back to the person. Because I've thinking as coaches, like we've fallen into, again, using the histories, like the uh, Gershler Stamfel model of intervals where it's all controlled, right? Mm-hmm. And yeah. that's one out over the unstructured um, approach. And I think if you come back down to training and We'll go on all sorts of tangents here, but it's it's a decision-making process. And if we can empower our athletes to take control over that decision, then like we're preparing them better for the acted skill of racing. So the uh, Canadian researcher and athletics aficionado who wrote the book on uh, Geber Selassie, the greatest, I think it was, Jim, mm-hmm, Den- yep. J- Jim Dennison, um, has, has put together some great pieces on how the training environment on how we are constraining athletes by creating environments like on the track where everything is uh 
structured, measured, expected of like where we start, where we finish, what the reps look like, et cetera. We've just ingrained it. And by doing that, we've lost like some, we've lost some skill and we've lost the ability to explore, um, both from a training standpoint, but also from a, a, you know, person standpoint of seeing what actually works, what it feels like to work through our gears, understand different efforts, um, not just run around in circles and know where the start and finish line is. And by introducing some of this unstructured play into it is can can do great things. And as you mentioned, like it can be as simple as shifting a, a lane and a starting point in on the track or you know, my high school coach used to have us, we had this one mile loop with a lot of offshoots and he used to just stand there and be like, okay, we're going to do five of these. Like, I don't care what loop you take. I don't care where you go. You're in this group of five athletes who are all pretty similar. And I'm just going to tell you like, Hey, at the beginning of this loop, like Steve's in charge of this loop. And what that meant was like I would decide when to surge, when to slow down, like how hard we should going, when to push, and then the next loop would come, and it would be you know my friend Paulo would be in charge, and like we mm. just switched that off where we were getting a some autonomy and deciding like how hard to push and when when not to push, but also having to respond to this uh, others in this situation as we would in a race. Versus all just being in a line and like knowing what we were doing in practice. It's, you know, it's, I think coaching nature to be overly prescriptive with everything, you know, like that's over coaching to some degree, right? It's just prescription on prescription. And then you have to ask yourself, what's the point of the workout? Is the point of the workout to grade the workout for the, is the athletes trying to, you know, do the workout as you prescribed and expected so they can get an A in the workout? Or are you, instead of grading the athlete's paper, helping them to get the A. And where we get the A is on race day, right? And I think you hit it spot on, Steve, having this overly prescriptive construct of workouts where it's a, a pace, a number of sets, number you know, of reps within a set, and certain paces that must be you know, ran, it limits the skill acquisition or skill refinement of instinct. Because instinct is what champions have more than non-champions instinct is what you know um creates the most amazing type of races instinct is really to me the skill or the talent that most people don't put a lot of stock in because that instinct happens in a heartbeat it's a quick decision it's a fast decision when we talk about decision making that's really what we're talking about quick and fast decisions such as in you know um I forget the Daniel's last name, but in Thinking Fast, Thinking Slow, their Kahneman. whole body of – Kahneman, yes. And Kahneman's whole body of research for 50 years, it's not about the right decision. It's about the quick decision that you go with. Because if you sit here and contemplate the right decision, well, should I go at 200 meters or should I go at 300 meters? Hmm, let me think. The moment's been lost, right? And so instinct, we've habituated or habituated instinct almost out of – the athlete's cognitive process in a highly structured workout environment versus encouraged it because on race day you have to be able to compete you know instinctually because what is a race it's a total improv affair <laughs> like it's an improv environment so we're going from a high controlled and structured environment to an improv environment and that's where i think 
Farlick nails it because it does, you know, um, stimulate and achieve this, you know, threshold component wherever it sits on the spect the threshold spectrum. But also too, it allows that athlete the uh, ability to practice and hone their instinct a little bit. And that's what I have to remember, right? Practice is the environment and the conditions that you're setting yourself up for race day, right? I always remind my athletes, race day should be normal. Practice is habituating a response to certain speeds, certain demands, certain asks, certain, you know, ability to do this sport called running. And race day should be no different. It's a normal thing. It's just, oh, instead of practice, now we have a race. Or the defined, um, you know, controllable and defined element is how far we are going and what time the race starts. And everything else I get to create. And so rather than being a um, victim on race day, you should be a creator on race day. Don't be a victim of, oh, it's too fast for me. Oh, it's this. Be a creator. I made it so. I made the race happen like this. And that to me, again – as we've you know, gone on this tangent, is where the cognitive threshold is just as important as the metabolic threshold. Because if you've built that metabolic threshold up to the height of that organism where the organs and the physiological systems are all clicking on cylinders, are, you know, but that psychological threshold is bankrupt, so what? So, so what? I, I think those are some great uh, points. And like to sum up this tangent – um, I'm reading a book called The Culture Code by Daniel Coyle, and I'm going to quote a section of it because I think it's very pertinent to this overcoaching idea. And in it, he's talking about um, Navy SEALs and a, a Team 6 commander, Navy Team Se- uh, Navy mm-hmm. SEAL Team 6 commander. And uh, the commander said was relaying the story of how he once was on a mission or watching a mission um, with – some army rangers and here you go the rangers commander and i were together at a nearby base observing the drone video feed of the mission the entire time the ranger commander was on the radio with his guys he was talking giving orders do this look out for that he was acting like a coach on the sideline yelling plays at some point this commander notices i'm not saying a word And he gives me this look, almost in disbelief, like, why aren't you telling your guys what to do? It was pretty striking. Our guys and their guys doing the same mission. He's talking the whole time, and we aren't saying a thing. And the answer is this, because we don't need to. I know my guys are going to solve the problems themselves. And I think... That right there is the same thing that we're looking at from a coaching standpoint, right? When we overcoach it, right, overstructure it, we're solving the problem for the athlete in practice. But if we structure practice sometimes in the way that allows them to have, you know, take charge, figure out the decisions for themselves, solve the problems, then when it comes to race day, they're going to be in a position to instinctually react and instinctually solve the different problems thrown at them. Whereas Mm -hmm. if they're not, if we overcoach them, then come race day, what happens is if a problem arises that isn't one that we've coached them on or one where we're not sitting there yelling at them, 
then they're going to freak out, then they're going to miss the jump, then they're going to miss the break, and they're not going to know what to do. And, you know, what's the cost of this? Well, some might say it's failure because if you're giving someone an opportunity to, you know, explore and create, it's not always going to be successful. But how many times did a parent overcoach a kid how to walk? You know, the kid learned mostly on its own by looking around and saying, yeah, all these human beings can do it, so can I. And it was a lot of getting up, falling down, a lot of false starts, right? And I think we have to remember failure isn't a myth. It's a total myth. All there is is learning experience. And all there is is refinement of your process, refinement of how you're going about it from the learning experience that is the outcome or result of that day's effort, whether that's in practice or whether it's in a race. This whole culture of failure and like, oh my God, success and fail. No, it's a myth. It's a total myth. If you look at it through the lens of just all I have is to learn, this worked, this didn't work. I did this and I got this result. I I didn't do this and I got this result. That's how we get better, right? And two, it's the same thing about, you know, bickering over semantics of threshold. I mean, Steve has his methodology that works through his experience and evidence and considerations of um, scientific data and research, and so do I. And who's to say whose athletes are not as successful or least successful? I mean, you look at Tara Walling, who won the half marathon championships in 2016, trained completely different in a completely different manner than Natasha Rogers, who won it the next year. And so to say like now Steve's method is better than my method or my method is better than his or this person's method is better than someone else. No, 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 no. Like there's just learning. We're always, always learning. Like I learned a lot today listening to Steve. I go, huh, those are things I would never have considered or things that I didn't think of uh, that would have an impact. And, you know, my mind has always changed. Every podcast I do here and every time I go to a coaching conference or track me and talk to other coaches. And I think when we get caught up in – that myopic, stubborn mindset that we have to do it like this because we've all we've all lost, and you know, coach and athlete included. And I think it it comes down to like no one has answers, right? No one has the magic answer, right? We're all exploring, and the minute you stop exploring, is the time that it's like it's death, right? You stop learning, you stop growing, you start. You stop thinking. And I think out of anything, what I've gone out of this is is that you need to think and have a reasoning behind what you're doing, right? You need to understand that, like, my definitions will differ, differ from John's definitions, right? But that's okay as long as I define them in a way that makes sense and that is communicated effectively to the athletes I'm working with. Right. It's not about having like the one clear, true definition of threshold. And if it isn't this, then we're all wrong. No, that's that's not what it's about. It's about figuring out what the definition is that makes sense in your model of training. Right. And is communicated to your athletes. And, you know, think about those things and think about why you're doing things. Right. I'm going to go back and look and see, hey, do I need, do I really need these marathon pace long workouts or am I holding on to them as a security blanket because I've done them for so long? Or, mm. you know, maybe I do, maybe I don't. But in that exploration, 
is where I'm going to grow as a coach. So challenge yourself to explore. No different than John and I are doing. No different than Vern Gambetta is doing and saying like, hey, I think based on my research, knowledge, experience that maybe doing more fartlek is the way I'm going to get this athlete to get this quality that I need. So challenge yourself to explore. And when exploring, you're going to take the wrong turn sometimes. But that's okay <laughs> as long as you reflect on it, learn from it, and um, grow and adapt from it. Speaking of explorers, you know, that's a great point, Steve. I'm going to end here with a, a, a quote from another little pamphlet or book. Actually, there's more of a pamphlet, 20 pages long, that I just picked up. It's called Arthur Lydiard's Running Training Schedules, 20 pages long. And it basically, his, essentially his first published work about his methods um, back in 1970, so almost 50 years old. It's 15 pages of him discussing how he has figured out or how he prepared the Olympians and world record holders he did in New Zealand, and then five pages of just numbers and training tables and schedules. But the last paragraph of text that he offers is this. I liken coaching of distance runners to the putting together of a jigsaw puzzle. All coaches know the different methods of training, such as fartlek, long striding, sharpening, etc. And then he concludes, but as has been said many times before, and to which I prescribe, coaching is more than a science. It is an art aimed at bringing the athlete right on the relevant day. Nothing more. I mean, when people say they're a linear guy or a linear gal or a linear coach, well, then that, I think, <laughs> you know, you got to understand what how even Lydiard thought, right? And that's exactly what it is. This is a big jigsaw. And, um, you know, Lydiard is the one you look to say, oh, marathon pace training. That has really 100 miles a week. Those are the things he really um, uh, sounded the, the, the drum on and beat and blew the horn on. And it worked. And so did Igloy's methods. And so did, you know, all these different other people. So take what you will on what's on offer. But no, like... It's very important, if anything, at the end of the day, be clear about what you mean with the different types of training um, that you're offering athletes and that you're employing athletes to do so they know exactly why they are doing what they're doing, not just from a physiological metabolic standpoint and um, for that threshold mechanism, but also too cognitively and psychologically because that's going to help them too on race day because that's at the end of the day what this is all about, getting them right on the relevant day. Couldn't have said it better. And I'll just end with a plug. If you uh, want to understand Lydiard and see a further breakdown, HBW Scholar Supreme Seminar. Hopefully I said that right this time. I think so. Yes. It's awesome. Uh, man, we are breaking down Lydiard like no other because you know what? We both have those original books and it is fascinating. So um, yeah. anyway, there's a little plug. Thanks a lot for listening. As always, guys, we guys and gals, we really appreciate it. Love the feedback. And, yeah, it's a, it's a pleasure having these discussions for you guys to hear. All right. Until next time.